This week, uh, in in my studies, usually, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna like kind of break the fourth wall here, right? Uh, usually, when I'm preparing, like I start preparing on Tuesdays, right? I take Monday and I catch up on schoolwork and that kind of stuff, and then on Tuesdays I start reading the text and making my own notes and that kind of stuff. So there's the fourth wall break. Now you know that on Mondays I'm usually not looking at next Sunday until Tuesday. But uh, but uh, thank you, David, for that pity laugh. I appreciate that. <laughs> but. Uh, uh, so very early, and when I use that phrase, I mean Tuesday, right? On Tuesday, I was looking at the text for this morning, and, and I realized that this is really a great text to follow up our study in Habakkuk. Because uh, really, I had two reasons, but then I thought of a third in Sunday school this morning. And really, I even kind of thought of a fourth as we were worshiping this morning through song. But the first reason, really, it, this, this text really continues in that theme of praising God for his work of salvation and the lives of the people that he has chosen to be his own. Right? We saw that in Habakkuk 3 last week in Habakkuk's hymn of praise. And we really start to see it here in this. And we saw it especially in our worship and singing this morning. The second reason I wrote down initially was it continues to illustrate that posture of righteousness by faith that Habakkuk really modeled for us throughout his letter. Especially after he complained to God and God responds. And then in chapter 3 last week we see that he adopts that posture of righteousness by faith. But then in Sunday school I wrote this down in my margins here. This text really starts to fit well this week and next week with what Craig is going through in Sunday school regarding the Logos and Christ. And so there's the plug for coming to Sunday school, right? Because this text really fits in well with that. You actually uh, brought up the majority of what we're going to be talking about today in this text. So those are the three reasons, right, like any good evangelical pastor should have, right? Uh, But anyway, that being said, uh, in the case of the Apostle Paul here, what we see, though, is a clear picture that That nothing that Paul had ever done deserved the mercy of God. Now, we all can relate to that pretty quickly, I think. But we also see that by God's grace, Paul was given the faith to believe on Christ. And by his grace, Christ made Paul a servant for his church, even though his past sins against Christ and against the church were heinous and evil and blasphemous. And so as we go through this text today, I'm going to do something that I think is absolutely brand new since I've been back at Christ Community Church. I used to do this in other places where I have served as as pastor and minister, but I don't think I've done it here yet. And I'm actually going to give you an outline. I'm going to give you points, right? I don't know if I've ever done that, right? I mean, I think most of it's just been kind of a a walkthrough narrative. But I'm going to do it partly just for the note takers in the room. This is like being a kid giving a $20 bill and turn loose in the candy store, like, 20 years ago, right now, 20 bucks would give you like a bag of M&Ms or something. But, but you know, 20, 30 years ago, I'd have gotten you a lot. But the other reason, I just, not only do I want to, but I think that this text and doing it this way will really help us to see how Paul gives us and helps us to understand how we can live out a posture of righteousness by faith. And so here's point number one. If you are a note taker, here's point number one. Christ came to save sinners. Christ came to save sinners. We talked about that this morning. Listen to what I think is really the central text of this entire text that we have here this morning. And it's in verse 15. It's right there, right smack in the middle in your bulletin. And Paul begins this verse by saying this. The saying is trustworthy. 
and it is deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is absolutely the essence of the gospel. This is the essence of the good news of Christ Jesus. Now, we did bring this up in Sunday school this morning, but and this is absolutely true. Yes, there is absolutely much, much more to the gospel than only being saved from sin. We understand that, especially those of us who have been walking with Christ for a long time, who understand that through the process of sanctification that, and, and as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, that there's more to the gospel than just being saved from sin. But at its bare bones, if you were to tear away everything else and get down to the skeletal structure of the gospel, when we discuss the good news with someone who does not believe in Christ, what we see is that we have a message and a commission from the Lord Jesus himself that proclaims how a person can be made righteous before God because Christ came to save sinners. And so a posture then of righteousness by faith finds both its beginning and its ending in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what this verse does then, it actually gives us a framework to work our way through this text. We're going to weave in and out of this text all morning today. But it also helps us as we live out a posture of faith. And so since we've heard the whole text read, thank you, Greg, for doing that. Since we've heard the whole text read, think about what the framework of verse 15 offers us. So just breezing over it with your eyes, think about this. In verses 13 and 16, Paul makes two comments, and we're going to dig into them in a minute. But he, but he tells us why he receives mercy. Why does Paul receive mercy? He receives mercy because Christ came into the world to save sinners. Paul was a sinner in need of the mercy of God. We are all sinners in need of the mercy of God. Christ came to save sinners. And because just like Paul, as sinners, we are all blasphemers of God. As sinners, we are all blasphemers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are all blasphemers of the Spirit of Christ. As sinners, we are all persecutors of Christ and his church. And as sinners, we are all insolent opponents of the gospel because our sin is a rejection of who God is. But Christ came to save sinners. And so focusing in just on two particular comments, he says in this one half of this verse, Paul says here, he says that the saying is trustworthy. In the Greek, we could literally turn this around and translate it as faithful is this word. And so this faithful word, this faithful word is deserving, he says, of full acceptance. It is worthy to be cherished by all believers in Christ because the purpose of Christ's coming was to save sinners. Augustine, writing on this particular verse, he writes this. He says, there was no reason whatsoever for Christ to come except to save sinners. And then he gives a great illustration. He says, if we were to eliminate every disease and every wound, then there would be no cause for a doctor or for medicine. But if a great doctor had come down from heaven, then obviously a great invalid must have been lying sick throughout the entire world. And this invalid is the whole human race. This trustworthy, faithful word that Christ Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, what we confess when we confess the Nicene Creed, that he is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. He is begotten, not made. He is one being with the Father. This Christ came into the world for the purpose of saving sinners. I used to work with a guy when, I worked, when we lived and worked in Georgia, uh, who was a Nazarene. Now, Nazarenes are good people, right? Nothing wrong with them. But 
He would always, when we would talk about Scripture and we would talk about theology, he would always constantly say, look, I'm a red-letter Christian, right? Unless Jesus said it, then I'm not really going to pay attention to it. And so thankfully, though, if, if you happen to be inclined to that direction, you know what? This is Paul. This is not Jesus. Tell me that Jesus said this, then I'll believe it. Jesus did say this. I'll give you some verses, right? In John 3.16, probably the most famous Bible verse in all of history, Jesus tells Nicodemus in their nighttime meeting that God loved the world so much that he did what? He gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life, would have salvation. And then in both Matthew 18.11 and Luke chapter 19.10, they both record Jesus saying this. We referenced this this morning in Sunday school. The Son of Man came to do what? He came to seek and to save those who were lost. And then finally, and I will read this one out loud for you. In John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40, Jesus says this. This is one of his fam- beginning of one of his famous I am statements. He says, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that, that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. To live in a posture of faith in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus is to live with an attitude or a disposition that can rest in this faithful and trustworthy saying that Paul gives us in 1 Timothy 1.15. Even when we have our Habakkuk-like moments, right? When we're angry or we're frustrated or we're confused or we just don't have a clue why God is doing what he is doing in our lives— We can rest in the faithful and trustworthy word that Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's point number one. Let's build on it for three more points because I'm just going to do that today. So Christ came into the world, point number two. Christ came into the world to save sinners regardless of their sin. Now this one, we think about it and we start, in our minds, our human minds, we start thinking, well, man, you know, that sin is a whole lot worse than this sin, so... I need some more clarification here. Now, thankfully, I'm going to give it to you, right? Because that's part of what I'm doing, right? So this doesn't mean that our sin is not a major issue. It absolutely is a major issue. Our sin is what put Christ on the cross because Christ came to save sinners. Rather, what this point begins to illustrate is the tender and really the pastoral heart of both the Lord and of the Apostle Paul. Because notice how the Spirit, through the pen of Paul in this entire text, offers each and every believer an encouragement when our hearts are anxious, especially when we begin to wonder whether or not God is real, or God loves us, or God is good, or God is even holy. Because each and every one of us, at some point in our lives, whether that's a couple of times a week, every day, a couple times a month, whatever, at some point we are so easily tempted to dwell on our sin, or on reasons why we think God could not love us, or that God could not be good. And so what Paul does is he starts to offer us a few details about himself. And so notice in this text, Paul offers up himself as an example 
of God's love to sinners through the work of the Lord Jesus. Because Paul, and we get this not only in this letter, but in all of his letters, but Paul, who now rightly understands his sin in the light of the person and work of Christ, he understands that the depth of the love of God towards him, because God had redeemed him regardless of the heinousness of his past sin. And so what Paul is saying here basically, and you've probably heard this before, Paul is basically saying if God can save me, he can save anyone else. And so what Paul does is he offers up himself as an example, and he does it in two ways in these verses. He says that his sins were both intentional and they were also ignorant. So we're going to look at both of those real quick. First, in ver- the first half of verse 15, or the second half of verse 15, so go back to exactly where we read a moment ago, and we're going to finish the whole verse. Paul set, calls himself the foremost of sinners. He says again, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. The Greek word that Paul uses here of himself that we have translated in our text is foremost doesn't suggest this idea that he jumped to the head of the line, right? Like he didn't go and skip line and cut line to get in front to say, I'm here, God, I'm the worst of worst of sinners. Instead, in the Greek, this is understood as a most prominent position. So if you were to look up the word sinner in the dictionary, Paul is basically telling us, you would find my picture underneath if you were to go look in the dictionary. Now, I'm sure hearing this, we're probably thinking, and I know I did this when I was preparing this, and you're looking back over your own sinful life, and you're thinking, man, Paul, you don't have a clue, man, right? I've got scripture to look at this. Compared to what I've done, I could give you a run for your money, right? So we read this, and we're like, hang on a minute. Why, why would Paul consider himself the chief of sinners, as the KJV puts it? Or as the message paraphrase puts it, uh, Eugene Peterson did, he said, I'm public sinner number one, right? So why would Paul consider himself the foremost or the chief of sinners? Back up to verse 13. In your bulletin, this is going to start right in the middle of a sentence. But he says this. He says, I was a blasphemer. Formerly, I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent. So let's just do a basic definition of each of those words to understand how Paul is the chief or the foremost of sinners. A blasphemer, we understand this word. We all have a decent context for it. It's someone who uses words or even sometimes actions to defame or to belittle or to demean someone. In this case, the Lord Jesus himself. A persecutor, again, we have a good understanding of this. A persecutor is someone who harasses and mistreats someone, especially because of their religious beliefs. But an insolent opponent, this is where Paul kind of goes from surface level to medium level to super deep. Insolent opponent is someone who mistreats someone else more often than not through physical violence. So Paul is looking back over his past sinful life before he came to faith in Christ. And he sees someone who was beyond the help of God because he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent. To put it in a term that we understand especially today... Paul considered himself a terrorist against the church. Listen to how Luke describes him in in Acts chapter 8. So in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, Luke writes that Saul, who we know as Paul, looks on and approves of the execution of Stephen, who had given a proclamation of Christ the Lord. And so we see that there is a great persecution that arises against the church, and they're spread out throughout the region except the apostles who stay in Jerusalem. 
And then devout men come and they bury Stephen and they make a great lamentation over him. But then in verse 3, Luke writes this. But Saul, Paul, was ravaging the church and he entered house after house and he dragged off both men and women and committed them to prison. Paul had fought hard and violently and stubbornly against the truth of the gospel of Christ Jesus. And he did so to the point that he saw himself in the chief position, in the primary position of those whose sins put Christ on the cross in the first place. And so notice too here, notice how Paul, though, in the saying, though, is, is very humble. He states at the end of that verse, he says, of whom I am the foremost. He says, I am the foremost of sinners, not I was the foremost of sinners. One commentator is helpful here. He said that this is a truly Pauline statement because Paul Constantly, He's not dwelling on his sinfulness, but rather he's recognizing and he recognizes himself as always having the status of a sinner who has been redeemed. And while the one who has trusted in Christ and who has been redeemed by Christ and whose heart has been regenerated by the work of the Spirit of Christ, we are all co-heirs with Christ. Even still, we are all still saved, redeemed sinners. And we are constantly and consistently Reminding ourselves of that fact. Miles Stanford writes in chapter 3 of the Green Letters, he says this, he says, But many suppose that now because they are conscious of sin, they need to renew their acceptance with God. But he says, The truth is God has not altered toward you. His eye rests upon the work accomplished by Christ for the Christian. So he says, when you are not walking in the spirit, you're then walking in the flesh. You have returned to that old man that was killed in the body of Christ as he hung on the cross. So he says, when sins are introduced, there is fear that God has changed, but he has not changed. You've changed. And Paul's point here is that our salvation hope remains in Christ and in the unalterable nature of his love for his bride, even when our sins are intentional. But then he takes it to another level. He says, not only were they intentional, he said that they were ignorant. In verse 13, he says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So what Paul is not doing here is he's not suggesting that ignorance lets us off the hook as sinners. Ignorance is not an excuse. This would be like getting pulled over for going 60 and a 30 and just claiming, well, I didn't know what the speed limit was, right? That doesn't work. And so what Paul does is he goes so far to stress this to the Romans. He says, ignorance is not an excuse. Because of creation, you see that God's power has been displayed for all of creation since the beginning of the world. You have no excuse to deny the existence of God. And then he goes on and he quotes the psalm that we sang this morning. He says that no one is righteous. No one. Ignorance is not an excuse. But even in his ignorance, Paul starts to hold himself up as an example. Because in his ignorance, God showed him grace, and he showed him love, and he showed him mercy. And even though he acted in ignorance, Paul is not attempting to diminish the guilt of his sin, but rather he is tenderly and lovingly reminding us that God can bring salvation to both the willful sinner and the ignorant sinner. And so this saying of Paul is not motivated out of self-righteousness, and he's not faking humility. But instead, he understands his sinfulness. And he understands that God poured out his grace freely upon him because God unconditionally accepted him in the Lord Jesus Christ despite his sin. And so even though his past sins were both intentional and ignorant, 
Paul's pastoral heart cannot help but remind us here that Christ came to save sinners regardless of what their sins were. So point number three, Christ came to save sinners to show the grace and mercy and patience of God. He came to save sinners to show the grace and mercy and patience of God. Again, here in this point, we have really another clear picture of Paul's pastoral heart, of his loving heart for the church. Not just for Timothy, but for the entire church. That includes even us, this many years after Paul has died. But he does this by how he continues to offer up himself as an example, especially for a Christian who is struggling with their understanding, their standing in God himself. Because he does this by showing us how his experience demonstrates the patience of a loving God for sinners. He writes this in verse 16, so skip to the next sentence after the very first one we read. He says this, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. There's four words I want to look at real quick here in, in just this verse and then also in verse 14, and I'll read it here in just a moment. But I think it will help us understand how Paul is an example. So the first word he uses actually is grace, and it's in verse 14. He says this at the end of verse 13 and verse 14, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in a belief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So regardless of his past wickedness, of persecuting the church, or of dragging believers out of their homes and throwing them into prison, God was gracious to Paul because it's in God's nature to show this kind of grace. And as an example, God's grace was poured out on Paul as a testimony to God's love. And for Paul and for all believers, he says faith comes as a response to God's grace. As he tells the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And that's not even of you. That is a gift from God. Christ came to save sinners to display the grace of God. The second word is the word mercy. Again, but I receive mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Verse 16, but I receive mercy for this reason, that as the chief of sinners, Christ might display his patience as an example. Paul stresses here that God made a public display of his grace to a heinous sinner like Paul just so that every weary and anxious and frustrated sinner, both lost and redeemed, could rest in the merciful grace of the Lord God. And they could believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So here again, we, we've got to restress that major first point, right? Christ came into the world to save sinners. Paul says here that he received mercy for that very reason, to hold himself up as an example. And Paul tells Timothy and he tells the church that his salvation was part of God's plan to use Paul to bring others to salvation. Any person who has come to saving faith in Christ based upon the reading or the hearing or the preaching of the letters of Paul knows that God used Paul to bring others to salvation. Paul's self-awareness of how God had chosen him is absolutely profound. But so is his humility here. And so what Paul does is he is convinced that the mercy of God has come to him for one specific purpose, to prove the sufficiency of God's mercy so that all sinners who would have faith and believe on Christ for salvation 
Christ came to save sinners to display the mercy of God. The third word is actually two words, and it's found in verse 16. It's the word perfect patience. So again, he says, I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example. So what Paul's telling us that Christ demonstrated his perfect patience in dealing with any sinner, regardless of what your sins are, by the way in which he dealt with Paul. And he states here that this patience is precisely for the purpose of providing Paul as an example, as a prototype for any and all who would believe on Christ and have life in his name. Again, you see in this Paul's self-awareness of his own salvation. God had saved him so that Paul might be a living, breathing example of Christ's perfect patience toward every sinner. And just so that we could all be encouraged by knowing that if God's grace and love and mercy is patient enough for someone like Paul, then it is most definitely patient enough for someone like you and me. And so the final word here is also two words, and it's there at the end of verse 16. It's the phrase eternal life. Again, he says this, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now, this is a phrase that I think every believer in the room or anybody that has been churched is pretty aware of, right? You talk about eternal life, you combine that with salvation, and you, you, you've got your gospel presentation pretty down pat at that point, right? But sometimes I think we really miss how Paul actually understands the phrase eternal life. Because I don't think we've ever really been taught it. I'm not saying we have it here, but don't miss the weight of what Paul's understanding is. Because in Pauline thought, as well as in biblical thought, and then going even beyond that to Greek thought, eternal life means more than simple endless longevity. It means more than just simple heavenly bliss, right? Eternal life means the new world or the coming age. It means... That Christ is making through his new covenant people a new creation. And this is why Paul, in the very end of our text of today, breaks out into this doxology. He says, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, or to the ages of ages. Amen. Living within a posture of righteousness by faith in Christ leans into these truths that God in Christ is gracious and merciful and loving and patient to any and all sinner who would be redeemed by Christ. And it is eternal. It is for all of the ages to come. And then finally, point number four, which really kind of doubles as our application here. Christ came to save sinners. That's the one that nobody's going to like. To put saved sinners to work. (laughs) Christ came to save sinners to make us do something. So listen to how Paul begins this. He begins in verse 12. I haven't touched on this verse at all. Greg read it, and I haven't gone back to it yet. Listen to what Paul says. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. So as we've weaved our way through this text today, we see that Paul, like every sinner, he had been an enemy of Christ. And even with the depth of the heinousness of his sin, Christ still chose Paul to be an apostle anyway. And this truth, and we've noticed this just through these few verses today, this truth, it just absolutely astonishes Paul. 
because he knew that Jesus treated him far better than his sin ever deserved. But notice, in this one verse, there's really a threefold work of Christ that takes place within the life of Paul that stresses this final point, that Christ came to save sinners to put saved sinners to work. And the first one is this, Christ strengthened Paul for service. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. So when Paul talks about the strength that Christ had given him, this is not sanctification. This is salvation he's talking about. This is the faith that God had given him to believe in Christ to begin with. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is a gift of God. And so it's only by the strength of Christ that Paul is qualified for the work of Christ because the strength of Christ redeemed Paul. This could also be understood as as Christ giving him the strength to take the to to boldly take the call of Christ to go to the Gentiles with the gospel. Chrysostom actually points us to this part. He says he notes Paul's humility here, but then he says that Paul is reminding the church that he considered himself not only to be the chief of sinners, but completely unworthy for the work of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul's right, he was unworthy in and of himself, but through Christ And through the strengthening of Christ, Paul becomes worthy to take the gospel because of Christ. So Christ strengthened Paul for the work by redeeming Paul because Christ Jesus came for the purpose of saving sinners. The second work in this verse is this. Christ judged Paul faithful for service. Again, he says this. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. So really, he builds out of that understanding of being strengthened, of being redeemed, of being saved. But we should note that Paul's sentiment here is not that God thought Paul worthy, but rather Paul is stressing that the astonishment that God has redeemed Paul in the first place and then entrusted him with the gospel. So remember, again, everything we've looked at so far this morning, Paul was a terrorist to the early church. He was persecuting them. He was dragging them out of their homes and putting them in prison. Logically, it makes no sense to anyone to make public enemy number one your spokesman for a movement. Right? But this is exactly what God did through Paul because God does things differently. But even more so, this is exactly what God does for every single one of us who have called on Christ for salvation. Because through our sin, we are all public enemy number one against God and the gospel. And this is not a call to beat yourself up over your sinful past. It's remembering who you were so that you can properly praise and serve God out of who you are through the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Chrysostom writes here, he says, If God has pardoned your sin, then receive your pardon and give thanks. But he also says, Don't be forgetful of your sin. Not that you need to fret over it, but that you can teach your soul not to grow lax or to relapse again into the same habits. And then Augustine proclaims here, he says, God does not choose a person who is worthy, but by the act of choosing a person, God makes them worthy. Paul marvels that God would take such a person who had been blasphemous and prideful and then put him to work in the service of the church that he persecuted. And then finally here, we see in this verse that Christ appointed Paul to service. So again, the whole verse I thank him who has given me strength, who has redeemed me, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful by appointing me to his service. The verbiage here is really interesting. 
Because our minds, I think, immediately go to the fact that Paul was an apostle. But he's not referencing his office in this verse. He's referencing his work as a servant. And this is not, most of the times when we see servant in Scripture, especially when Paul's beginning his letters, he uses the word doulos, which also means slave. But there's a different word he uses here. He uses the word, and I'm going to butcher it, but he uses this word diakonia, which has a similar root word to diakonos, which is where we get our English word deacon. And this is extremely revealing, not only in how we grasp the purpose of Christ's coming, but also in how we adopt a posture of faith. Because Paul may have had the office of an apostle, but Christ came into the world for the purpose of saving sinners. And that includes all who have been redeemed and called in faith on Christ. Which means that each and every Christian, including Paul, is also appointed to the role of diakonia, the role of service to Christ and his church. So you may not hold the office of deacon, and you may not think that God has any use for you outside of Sunday morning worship, but every single Christian, elders, deacons, members, guests, people listening to the audio podcast, everyone who has called in faith upon the name of Christ for salvation, we are all redeemed and appointed to the role of diakonia, to the role of servant ministry to the church of Christ. Christ came into the world to save sinners, to put us to work in his kingdom. As Paul would finish, or finish the first half of Ephesians 2, he says that we are God's workmanship. We, the redeemed of Christ, are God's workmanship. And we are created in Christ Jesus. We are made a new creation, he tells us in 2 Corinthians 5. A new creation for Christ Jesus, for good works, which God had prepared those good works beforehand just so that he could appoint us to his work when he called us out of our sin and into the light and life that is in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So I thank him who has given me strength. I thank him who has given you strength. Christ Jesus our Lord because he has judged us faithful and has appointed us to his service. And so to the God and to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory to the ages, to ages, forever and ever. Amen and amen.